I wear the badge of socialist with honor. Shama Savant is the first socialist elected to the city office in Seattle in generations. There's a thousand differences between our campaigns and the campaigns of a Democratic Party candidate. It has different goals. All are watching Seattle, which made history this week by passing the $15 an hour minimum wage. It was the first time I had seen mass grassroots democracy in that kind of way. It was electric, you know, there was a mood there. The election of a socialist to the council of a major city in the heartland of global capitalism has made waves around the world. Politics, you know, that we have under capitalism is, that's not our playing field. The whole establishment and the way it's structured is to uh, favor big business. And I said a bologna sandwich would be better for business than, than Shama. It's quite fascinating for, for me to see somebody so eager to be big business's bologna sandwich. Shama Sawant took on Amazon founder Jeff Bezos as she made what sounded like a victory speech today. The Seattle City Council member called Tuesday's election results a repudiation of the billionaire class. To all those prepared to resist the agenda of big business in Seattle and nationwide, I appeal to you, get organized. Join with us in building a mass movement for economic and social justice, for democratic socialist change, whereby the resources of society can be harnessed not for the greed of a minority, but for the benefit of all people. Welcome to On Strike, a production of Worker Strike Back. I'm Shama Sawant. And I'm Bia Lacombe. Long before democratic socialists like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez were household names, Socialist Alternative and Shama won an openly socialist campaign for the Seattle City Council in 2013. Shama was the first socialist elected in Seattle in nearly a century. After a decade in office and having overcome unrelenting big business opposition to win historic victories and four consecutive elections, Shama is leaving the city council undefeated. The corporate establishment in Seattle will be very happy with the news that I am not running again. They should not rush to mix their martinis just yet because we are not done here. Rather than running again in Seattle, Socialist Alternative and Shama have launched Worker Strike Back which, as many of you know, is a nationwide, independent, rank-and-file movement organizing in our workplaces and on the streets against the bosses and their political servants. Today and next Friday, On Strike is doing a special two-episode feature to close out 2023 before we break for the holidays. We'll talk about the lessons of how Socialist Alternative and Shama's Socialist City Council Office, alongside movements of working people, have won historic victories. But first, I want to talk about On Strike and the membership drive we've launched for Worker Strike Back. Become a member now and help ensure Worker Strike Back can continue to organize to rebuild a fighting labor movement, and On Strike can continue to bring you coverage of a wide range of issues that are really hard to find on mainstream media. Not to mention On Strike's unique approach of also presenting analysis and strategy for working class fight back. On Strike doesn't run any ads, and we don't accept any corporate money. We rely entirely on donations from working people to support our work. Go to workerstrikeback.org and click on Become a Member. In 2014, within six months of first taking office, Shama and the 15 Now movement that she launched along with Socialist Alternative and rank-and-file workers made Seattle the first major city to win a $15 an hour minimum wage. 
Today, we're fighting for a $25 an hour minimum wage. But 10 years ago, winning 15 was an astounding victory that stunned the nation. Before we won, $15 an hour was dismissed as utopian and ludicrous by the Democrats and the corporate media. It was only because of the victory of Seattle's Working Class 15 Now movement, led by our office, that the $15 minimum wage spread around the country. We won the historic Amazon tax in 2020, which funds affordable housing and other needs to the tune of over $215 million annually by taxing the city's wealthiest corporations. That was the same year that we won the nation's first ever ban on police use of chemical and quote-unquote crowd control weapons against peaceful protests, with a historic number of Seattle's working people speaking in city council public comment in support of the legislation. Our office rejected business as usual in the annual public sector budget vote by the city council. Like politicians in virtually every city, Seattle's Democrats hold long and process-heavy budget meetings every year during which they attack social programs for working people and the poor. At best, they throw a few crumbs to social and community needs and pat themselves on the back while ensuring an ever-regressive budget that serves the interests of the wealthy. Starting with her first year in office, Socialist Alternative and Shama's office launched the annual People's Budget Campaign, which hundreds of activists used every year to get organized and win millions of dollars in funding for affordable housing, renter needs including defense against evictions, and social services. You know, when we first came into office, we didn't come into the uh, into City Hall knowing we were going to have a people's budget movement each year. We can't, you know, that that emerged actually out of the fact that we learned in the course of our first budget season that for literally, it was like two or three decades, every year before that, right when the, the decisions were about, right when the budget process was about to get serious, uh, the majority, if not all the city council members on any given year would go to a taxpayer funded chamber of commerce sponsored retreat. And so we said, okay, they're, they're gonna go on there you know, have their big business budget be discussed. Well, we're going to start, you know, uh, the, the people's budget campaign. So we had a press conference. And of course, that began what every single year was, uh, you know, a, a, a real, you know, uh, a movement driven. That's a kind of thing where, uh, you know, with the movement, with ordinary people, you know, believe me, the city council Democrats, they're not going to be taking Chamber of Commerce sponsored retreats uh, any longer. Together with indigenous and urban native activists, we ended Seattle's gross celebration of Columbus Day and replaced it with Indigenous Peoples Day. Later in 2016, we won a resolution expressing solidarity with the Standing Rock movement against the Keystone XL pipeline and condemning the violence and police repression directed against them in the fight against fossil fuel corporations and big banks. Our office has consistently fought alongside Seattle's renters to win unprecedented renters' rights victories deeply angering the city's corporate landlords. And last year, immediately after the reactionary Supreme Court dismantled Roe v. Wade, our office brought forward legislation making Seattle an abortion sanctuary city. According to the legislation, Seattle police are prohibited from arresting people based on outstanding warrants related to anti-abortion laws around the country and prevented from otherwise aiding in investigations of those cases. People with abortion-related warrants are able to live in Seattle without being extradited to whichever state is attempting to prosecute them. We immediately followed this up by winning full funding to make abortion free for all who need it in the city through our People's Budget Campaign. 
In early 2020, there were protests in Seattle and other cities against what were anti-Muslim and anti-poor citizenship laws by India's right-wing Hindu fundamentalist Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his Bharatiya Janata Party. Along with South Asian American community activists, our office won the first city council resolution condemning these laws. Later that same year, we won another landmark resolution in solidarity with the farmers and workers in India who were then fighting the Modi regime against pro-corporate agribusiness laws. In February this year, we made Seattle the first jurisdiction outside South Asia to win a ban on caste-based discrimination. The caste system is an ancient system of oppression devised by the ruling classes in South Asia over 2,000 years ago, which very much still exists under capitalism. And just last month, on November 21st, we made Seattle the largest city in the nation to pass the strongest ceasefire resolution against the Israeli state's war on Gaza. And that is far from a complete list of the victories won by Socialist Alternative and Shama alongside workers, union members, and community activists. OnStrike will cover many of these victories in later episodes. I was myself a community organizer in Shama's office from the middle of 2020 till this month and had the opportunity to help lead many of these struggles for over three years. Shama's record as an elected representative of the working class is all too rare in general and unparalleled in recent decades. After Shama was first elected, we saw AOC and other members of the squad get elected to US Congress. The Democratic Socialists of America exploded in membership and hundreds of left and self-identified socialist candidates were elected. Yet, what have we seen? Not only have the squad not succeeded in winning any comparable victories, they've refused to fight the Democratic Party's corporate establishment in any real way. They failed to stand up against the election of Nancy Pelosi as House Speaker in 2021, and shamefully voted a year ago to block the railroad union strike. They have repeatedly given cover to President Biden as he has sold out working people. So why have Socialist Alternative and Shama's office been able to defeat big business interests and the right wing again and again, whereas Bernie Sanders and the squad haven't? Is it because it can only be done on the local level and things are much harder for AOC? Is it because big business and the super rich don't mind it if workers win things in cities? Is it because Seattle is unique? In this two-episode feature, we will answer these questions. Lesson number one. You cannot be loyal to working people and keep big business happy. Failing to understand that is how progressives sell out workers. For many decades, corporate media and prominent political commentators have perpetuated the idea that in politics, it's all about quote-unquote collaboration and bipartisanship, and that it is important not to be divisive. It is routine during elections for candidates to proclaim that they will represent all their constituents, both working people and corporations. But this is an impossibility in the context of capitalism, with its extreme inequality of wealth and power. In virtually all political issues, the needs and interests of the vast majority of the working class and the poor are diametrically opposed to the interests and the greed of the super rich. So if you genuinely represent working people, let alone fight for their needs, you will inevitably anger big business and the elite. And no amount of genteel conversing on your part is going to make the rich feel you are on their side. Conversely, if you are trying to make the elite happy, it will require you to sell out workers. The political system in Seattle uh, historically has been controlled. That's a mild way to put it, but it's basically been controlled by money and, and by um, a, a, a group of people who basically 
want this to remain sort of a polite um, uh, uh, peripheral kind of a city where we don't really dig deep and deal with the real issues that are, face, that are facing uh, city government and the people. And so they're able to get away with a lot of things. So Shama being in the middle of that seat of power and, and focusing on those things that are, were, uh, were things that would help, the pe help people, marginalized people, uh, was a breath of fresh air because it was sort of an inside and the people on the outside could unite with that person on the inside and create sort of a, a, a real force for change. Our council office has been called divisive not only by corporate media and Chamber of Commerce spokespeople, but also by progressive Democrats. Each time we ran for election or launched a campaign around a demand, the media wrote our political obituary, and one of the mainstays of their expectation that we would die a quick political death was their conviction that our bold call for working class demands would be off-putting to everyone. What they missed, despite repeatedly being proven wrong, was that it had the exact opposite effect on most working and young people. When we ran for our third election in 2019, we made it very clear that the election was going to be about one question. Who gets to run Seattle? Amazon and big business or working people? We spent much of that year, uh, almost all of that year, <laughs> communicating that message to people, what we were fighting for, which we were fighting you know, for rent control, we, you know, we were fighting for renters' rights, et cetera, the, the concrete demands we put forward. Alongside them, we said that uh, our message was that uh, the question uh, you know, in front of us is, who, who runs Seattle? Is it gonna be Amazon and big business? or working people. Now, of course, in reality, Amazon and big business did and do run Seattle, but they wanted to go you know, even farther in, in getting rid of any opposition to them. So we made that the center, central theme of our campaign. And so when that spending did happen, we had already been carrying that message all over, all over the city and knocking on these more than 200,000 doors that we knocked on. That's something I would uh, often bring to the light of like people who supported Shama, but had illusions in whoever was running against them. I said, okay, when it comes down to it, Amazon comes down and and drops a million dollars on the candidate that's against Shama. Are you going to then support them? Because in my mind, it's you can't serve two, two masters. You know, I, I don't think you can serve both Amazon and working people at the same time. Our opponent in that 2019 general election was the Amazon and big business candidate. He opposed the progressive demands our campaign raised, whether it was rent control or taxing big business or ending the inhumane sweeps of homeless neighbors. But he tried hard to fool working people by pretending that there are no class conflicts. He campaigned on this false message of, it's not us versus them, it's just us. And I said, ah, bologna sandwich would be a better partner for business than Chama Salon. So she tried to turn it around on you, which yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah. So she also said that uh, this, this election is a battle between the billionaire class and the working class. Is that something you agree with? I don't believe that that's what this election is about. This is a quality of life election. You know, Shama Salon, she's a populist and she likes to have these, these grand contrasts between right and wrong, good and evil. Um, that's not the way that people see their lives on a day-to-day -day basis. They weren't able to attack her kind of on an honest, straightforward basis, right? They're not able to say, 15 is terrible, um, renters' rights are terrible.
I've proven throughout my career I can work collaboratively with, with folks. A collaborative style. Collaboratively. The citizens of District 3 deserve someone who can build bridges, not burn them. The citizens of District 3 deserve someone who can build bridges, not burn them. One of the main lines of attack that we started hearing was, look, we agree with Shama on all these different positions, but not the way that she goes about fighting for them. She's really divisive. She isn't a team player. She doesn't work with other members of the council. We just want to return to, you know, civility. We can just do those things in a much nicer way without creating all of this bad feeling in society that Shama stirs up. It is absurd to say that you can, uh, you know, you can accomplish anything without unity. Mm -hmm. But the crucial question here is unity is not a neutral point. It's unity with whom? Okay. Amazon and big business showed they don't want any unity with working people because they went to war against a very modest tax. So okay. So we need to build unity on the ground, the kind we have built okay. in order to win the victories we have won. We have also seen examples of how when progressives speak from both sides of their mouths, trying ostensibly to keep big business happy while telling working people they are the progressive candidate, it can totally backfire. Democrats don't want to run on concrete demands because they don't want to be held accountable for those demands. If a candidate says that they're going to fight for a $15 minimum wage, then that puts them on the hook, and not only them on the hook, but it puts their party, the Democratic Party, on the hook. The political establishment it has pressure on it, et cetera, and they want to avoid all of that. I've seen progressive Democrats say of uh, a, a, a bundle of flowers, and you know, and 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 say the things, the right things, and use the right words, but you know, I didn't have more time with my family and friends. I didn't, I didn't have the ability to spend you know, um, better, um, or more rather, I didn't, I didn't, my quality of life wasn't improving. There was nothing to show for. And I think like that's the bulk of the difference is actual improvement of my core needs, healthcare, um, housing, uh, wages, um, vacations, you know, all of these things are more important than you know, telling me I'm beautiful or something like that. I think that's the thing that I think that was is is missing is um, symbolic change versus actual change. The results of the 2021 elections in Seattle offer a great example. In 2021, our office faced a recall attempt, which was led by all the predictable entities: corporate landlords, the Trump supporting right wing, and big business as a whole. Not one self-described progressive Democrat on the city council spoke out against this right-wing recall effort. You attack the leadership, you know. You kill Fred Hampton. I mean, you, you kill the people who are trying to really uh, push this momentum and, 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 and make sure that, that it doesn't end. So you attack them, you, you, and then you create a false issue. You say that, you know, they're, they're illegitimate. And so therefore, that makes what they're pushing illegitimate. And then you come up with reasons why you feel they're illegitimate. But the way that we were unafraid uh, to, you know, to call this out for what it was, it was a, it was a right wing recall that was attempting, it was, a, it was a backlash against the Black Lives Matter movement and the role that Shema played in the Black Lives Matter movement. And once again, our political obituaries were written. Pandit spoke confidently that socialist alternative was finally going to be driven out of city hall. Many of the Democrats and their dedicated staffers could barely conceal their glee at our impending demise. But we proved them all wrong and won. As we expected, 
it was a narrow victory but the point is that despite all of the money and the media and the democratic party support the recall effort lost they lost even though they and the establishment manufactured the most undemocratic election possible a special election in the middle of a cold and rainy december which they hoped would result in low turnout from working people our campaign was so strong that we were able to mobilize historic voter turnout weeks before christmas but the punchline of this story is that as we won that same year two progressive democratic candidates nikita oliver for city council and lorena gonzalez for mayor both lost against their corporate opponents the recall was in december they had lost in november i think that they you know certainly when they launched their campaigns they expected that they would win easily in our recall fight we made it clear that we were up against big business and the right wing and that voting for the recall was a vote in favor of rapacious corporate landlords seattle's wealthiest businesses and the trump aligned republican party we raised the banner of rent control and increasing our amazon tax in contrast oliver and gonzales each ran a milk toast campaign they refused to raise any concrete working class demands lest they anger big business they spent the whole campaign trying to sound palatable to everyone regardless of class interests and they lost i think the the fundamental mistake that nikita oliver and lorena gonzales uh made uh was that they ran defensive campaigns they refused to campaign on the key issues facing working class people uh and they 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 didn't want to uh you know to appear divisive so they didn't expose their opponents as being you know chamber of commerce a thoroughly corporate candidates uh so instead they mostly you know they mostly you know ran on a personal narrative that stood out in the case of Nikita Oliver uh who was the more progressive of the two candidates and they were a, a democratic socialists of america candidate um that they you know they began uh with a you know i think a relatively progressive platform and this is true of most dsa campaigns if you look at their website uh, most dsa candidates have you know quite progressive platforms but they don't talk about them you know they go to debate after debate uh and they respond to the questions you know in 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 general terminology unfortunately too similarly to to traditional democratic party campaigns what they don't do is they don't hammer away on a on a key you know key political demands key uh demands that can make a difference in the lives of working class people which is of course what we do Nikita Oliver for example had begun uh with you know on their website they had rent control as one of their demands that was removed actually at some point during their campaign uh and uh and then when the question came up you know do you support rent control they backed away from it uh and uh um actually you know uh, effectively you know like publicly uh walked away from rent control And so I think for most people they didn't know necessarily what Nikita Oliver was running on what they saw were two candidates talking in general progressive terms you know and and so that is a mistake that's made over and over again by DSA candidates and some of them are elected nonetheless but in the case of Nikita Oliver you had a very determined uh corporate opposition that didn't want to see you know another uh they didn't want to see a DSA you know elected uh council member they already had they had a you know an a, an open clear socialist on the council they didn't even want a you know this uh you know uh sort of socialist on the council lesson number 2 genuine socialists and working class candidates can defeat powerful establishment incumbents and opponents and they can do so without capitulating to the democratic establishment 
Shama has run as an independent candidate in all four city council elections, and she did so each time as an unapologetic socialist, running on clear and bold working class demands. In every one of those elections, she was fiercely opposed by big business and the Democratic Party establishment. In 2019, Amazon broke city records trying to buy the Seattle elections, single-handedly spending $1.5 million. We defeated big business each time. In fact, without taking a dime in corporate money, we out-fundraised our corporate Democratic opponents in our 2015 and 2019 re-elections, and also the right-wing recall campaign against us in 2021. In both 2019 and 2021, we broke the fundraising records for all previous city council campaigns, entirely through grassroots, working-class donations. It wasn't easy. It took hundreds of volunteers to win each of those campaigns. Equally important were the demands that working people could see would make a real difference in their lives. Working people could see they had a stake in our campaigns. I remember hearing that even during phone banking, that we would call people who supported Shaman in the past, who were like, I would love to vote for her, but I can no longer afford to stay in, um, in District 3. Um, so I, I no longer live in that district, but they would donate just on the basis of, the, you know, that if, if, if the demands that we were fighting for um, were to have been won, they wouldn't have to move out of that area. We defeated 16-year Democratic incumbent Richard Conlin in our first city council election in 2013 on that basis by raising the banner of a $15 an hour minimum wage. During that first campaign, Chama was told, look, I support you, but do you have to say you're a socialist every time you give a speech? She was told, you should drop 15, it's too radical. Don't talk about taxing the rich, it's divisive. Don't campaign on rent control, it doesn't work. And she was told that she should run in the Democratic Party. How can you win as an independent? She was told she had to take corporate money. How can you win without taking money from big business? Socialist Alternative and Shama rejected all this friendly advice. And instead, our campaign shouted from the rooftops about all of those working class demands. Our campaign thrust the $15 minimum wage to the center of Seattle politics. When Shama was running, not a single other candidate for city council or mayoral candidate was publicly supporting 15. They were all making arguments against 15. They were all making the arguments of the business establishment, saying that this will slow down the local economy, that businesses will leave, small businesses will have to close. We drew a sharp contrast between our campaign and that of our opponent, Richard Conlin. We forced Conlin to go on the record refusing to support 15, a point he had been trying to fudge because of the growing popularity of our demand. We weren't afraid to expose Conlin generally. We also made sure working people knew that he had been the sole vote against the city's paid sick leave legislation. And when he tried to sell the breathtaking lie that he hadn't supported paid sick leave because the bill wasn't progressive enough, we called bullshit on that too. Every type of argument they could think of as to why it was a bad idea. And then it wasn't until, I think just like a couple weeks before the end of the mayoral race that Ed Murray suddenly did an about face because the race was really neck and neck and he knew he needed some sort of an edge if he wanted to win. And so suddenly he flips and says, 
you know, I support $15 an hour. And in fact, this has been my dream since I was a young boy to <laughs> make the minimum wage $15 an hour. So no, there was absolutely no intention by Democrats in Seattle to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And even after Shama got elected and Ed Murray got elected, they continued to work as hard as they could to prevent it from actually happening. If you allow Democrats to talk out of both sides of their mouths, which they almost all do, then you won't win. You have to fight tenaciously against the establishment and your opponent in order to win, making it crystal clear how you are different. You can't be afraid to be called not nice. Ordinarily, left candidates lose. You have to turn things upside down in order to win. You have to inspire working class people. We threw out the liberal rule book and ran an aggressively socialist working class campaign. We made it clear we were fighters, that we were fundamentally different. The way we went about it was very different and you could tell that by how people were responding to it. We weren't trying to make the argument that, oh, this is actually what is good for big business and it'll help the millionaires and the ordinary people. That was not our approach at all. It was working people have been, uh, you know, taking losses basically in order to increase corporate profits for a long time acknowledging that, calling that out, putting the statistics front and center and being like, actually a $15 an hour minimum wage doesn't even close the gap of how much working families have lost in real terms, you know, in the last decade or two. It's just the beginning of a step towards, uh, towards that direction and bringing, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of low wage workers out of poverty. We didn't give any credence to the arguments that, oh, maybe it's going a little too far, or maybe there won't be an, any incentive for people to go to school now or to work hard. And I think that was really exciting for people. Working and oppressed people have lots of reasons to be skeptical. They've been sold out so many times. You have to prove yourself. You have to earn their trust. Shama, you had an experience of this during our first city council campaign in 2013, is that right? Yes, I have this really clear memory. You know, we were tabling for our campaign in various parts of the city, and I was myself at one of our campaign tables, handing out campaign literature, trying to talk to working people about why they should get involved in this campaign, not just vote for it, but really actively get involved in the fight for 15 during our campaign itself. There was one woman, I remember her looking at me, like, you know, directly into my eyes from a distance, and she started walking towards me and I was bracing myself for perhaps a hostile conversation, perhaps somebody who's going to say, well, you know, 15 is a bad idea and it would affect big businesses that she's or even small business that she's concerned about. And instead, what happened was she came uh, to me to, to me near our table and she, she looks into my eyes and says, are you for real? And what she meant was that. Is this actually happening, that we have this fighting working class campaign that is not only talking about $15 an hour, but a, a campaign that is pledging to be loyal to working people, calling out the establishment's uh, betrayals of working people? It was so new for everybody at that time that she couldn't believe that this was happening. And then I think there were also some people who were supportive, but didn't think there was a serious chance of actually winning it, you know, which in retrospect, I understand because at that point, there hadn't been a campaign like that, you know, a serious campaign like that. There's a lot for people to be suspicious of, but then when they see a genuine campaign, so much for them to be so excited about. And, Absolutely. You know, we yeah. saw that many times. So in this year's election, the city council position in our district was won by the chosen candidate of the Chamber of Commerce. Unfortunately, this was no surprise. Her opponent was a mealy-mouthed liberal candidate who tried to be all things to all people. 
She didn't want to alienate the establishment, and she didn't campaign on working class demands. The one thing she did make clear is that she wouldn't be like Shama Sawant. And she lost by a landslide, predictably. Lesson number three. In order to win anything, you need to use your office as a vehicle for movements of working, young, and oppressed people. Fundamentally, it is imperative that genuine socialist and working class representatives understand that our task is not to help run the capitalist state alongside Democrats and Republicans only in a slightly more humane way. Our task is to disrupt the status quo and help organize the working class struggle by mobilizing working people to win concrete gains. And our job is not to reach consensus with capitalism's political representatives, but to expose them when they betray ordinary people. You know, the political establishment can just kind of, you know, sit on their hands and pretend they're deaf uh, until it's like, you know, a total boiling point and then just like give us garbage. But it's a lot harder for them to, to, to do that whole song and dance if we have someone who goes, oh yeah, they, you know, uh, you talk about, you know, trust the process and you'll form a committee and whatever. Like people don't have time to wait. Here's some legislation. How are you going to vote on it? Like that puts them in the hot seat. This implies that you as the leader or representative have to withstand the unrelenting pressures on you to betray working people. But you also need to understand that with the most principled position, it will still be impossible to accomplish anything by oneself. Far from winning historic victories, my office would have been marginalized had it not been for the continuous efforts by Socialist Alternative and our office to mobilize working people into struggle. In fact, we would not have been able to win four elections. Having that uh, dynamic is a basis on which you can bring working class people into uh, uh, into that, that political process. And that's how we can make, uh, you know, uh, to extract concessions from these other politicians who say, oh, I support workers or I support people of color or I support, you know, queer people or whatever, uh, the environment. They'll say that when they campaign and then go into City Hall and do whatever they want. But if we get the movement in there, then they can't just say that and not be held accountable at all. Socialist Alternative and I understood this starting with our first election campaign itself, which we used as a platform to begin building momentum for the $15 minimum wage struggle. Within weeks of me taking office, we launched the 15 Now movement to activate rank-and-file union members and non-union workers. We were joined by progressive union leaders such as Paula Lukasek, the president of BUFC 1495. The 15 Now campaign held a series of mass organizing conferences, launched neighborhood action groups, led a series of marches, and then democratically decided to file a grassroots ballot initiative. The ballot initiative strategy gave us a credible threat against big business. It would have allowed us to take the issue to voters if Democratic City Council members failed to act. All of this was crucial to forcing their hand. Similarly, when we launched the Tax Amazon movement in January 2020, it was a democratically organized movement with mass action conferences that involved hundreds of activists. These public action conferences elected a coordinating committee that was accountable to the action conferences. Yeah, we immediately set to work with uh, meeting with like union members, uh, you know, progressive union leaders, uh, faith and community leaders, um, and like uh, just kind of 
building for like launching this campaign, but it's, you know, the way that we do campaigns isn't uh, like from 15, uh, 15 now to tax Amazon. Like we don't just say like, oh, here's our campaign, you know, take it or leave it. We know what's best for you kind of a thing. Um, you know, we uh, organized to have uh, an action conference, which was, you know, we're flyering, we're postering, we're tabling, just like, you know, anyone who wants to show up can show up. Uh, you know, if you support taxing Amazon, you know, come be a part of the discussion and, and the debates. Despite fierce big business opposition and repeated ploys by city and state Democrats to derail it, the tax Amazon movement won during the height of the COVID pandemic and the Black Lives Matter street protests. We called actions and rallies like a COVID safe car caravan around the Amazon spheres. Most importantly, we again employed the strategy of a viable ballot initiative threat. As testament to the enormous support among ordinary people, the Tax Amazon Ballot Initiative gathered 20,000 signatures at the George Floyd protests in 20 days, ultimately tallying up 30,000 signatures. Not one Democrat was willing to speak in support of the Amazon tax for months, until after we built this momentum and were preparing to file our ballot initiative. We also used a fighting approach to win renters' rights victories. By mobilizing working class and low-income renters, we won unprecedented gains, such as the Economic Evictions Assistance Ordinance, which mandates that landlords pay three months rent as compensation to the tenants they end up evicting as a result of rent increases of 10% or greater. We also won legislation requiring a six months notice for any rent increases, a moratorium on evictions during winter months, and a moratorium on evictions of public school students and workers during the school year. Through our People's Budget campaigns, we won full funding for any renter requiring legal defense in the court against evictions. In December of 2014, we won a stunning victory against a federal attempt to destroy social housing on a grand scale. This nationwide program was called Moving to Work, a neoliberal assault on the little remaining public and affordable housing. Moving to Work's plan was to carry out massive increases in public housing rent with the idea that the tenants would be more motivated to get better paying jobs. This garden variety conservative ideology claims that people are poor because they're too lazy to seek better paying jobs, which serves as an excuse for austerity. This also has a racial dimension, given that a large proportion of public housing residents are low-income families of color, many from the immigrant community and many comprising single mom households. In an Orwellian move, the Seattle incarnation of this program to drag affordable housing backward was dubbed Stepping Forward. If Stepping Forward had been allowed to succeed, it would have increased rents for 4,600 working-class families by an eye-popping 400% over six years. As single mother Rebecca Snow Lander, one of the tenants, said at the time, quote, When I got that letter, I could barely get out of bed for about a week because it almost felt like a death sentence in a way. End quote. This program was presented to the tenants almost as a fait accompli. But the tenants, many of them East African women and young people, were unanimous in refusing to accept this lying down and wanted to fight against what they knew was a pipeline to homelessness. And they start organizing the tenants and, and the four projects in our uh, city and getting them involved. And they were really excited and happy because they had gotten a little notice saying, your rent's going to go up $275, $250, $300, all the way up to $400 or more, 400% increase in rent in a housing project for the poor. You know, we should have been immediately upset about that. 
But Shama and her staff are the first ones that saw it and start organizing the tenants. And then the tenants worked with her to start organizing the rest of us. So together with Socialist Alternative and other activists, our office organized hundreds of the residents. The federal government, hand in hand with the city establishment, had organized public meetings expecting that the tenants would not be confident enough to oppose stepping forward. But we turned every public meeting into a protest action, with tenants interrupting the establishment speakers repeatedly with chants and statements. This was exactly nine years ago, but I still remember vividly the thunder of a gymnasium full of immigrant tenants chanting, stepping backward in empowered call and response. I also remember at one of the meetings, a tenant challenged the officials publicly saying, you say we can all just easily get higher education and skills and quickly get better paying jobs to afford higher rents? Why don't you learn the Somali language in the next year and then we'll believe you? That got a huge round of whooping applause from the crowd who chanted, where are the jobs? Show me the jobs. But we also realized right away, it didn't matter how many of these tenants came out, the authority was gonna do what they were gonna do. These were pro forma things. So we had to find a way to actually bring the pressure to bear, not on the authority, which isn't elected by, you know, mm -hmm. but on the city council, on the mayor. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where, you know, uh, we, we put forward a, a, you know, a proclamation. We asked the city clerk, can we put forward a proclamation saying we're opposed to this? And I remember her answer was, well, it's not illegal, but it is without precedent. In other words, nobody does this kind of stuff. Yeah. What are you doing? We brought the proclamation. We brought hundreds of renters along with it saying to the city council, look, you sent a letter. That's not enough. You better not let this rent increase go forward. These protest actions culminated with us organizing and planning an incredible walkout of hundreds from the last public meeting. Following the walkout, we held our own powerful People's Assembly. We built unstoppable momentum with hundreds of East African and other community members of color who had never before participated in a political movement. We completely upended the plans of the Seattle Democratic Establishment and the Obama administration, which was ultimately responsible for the gutting of public housing funding at the time. Under pressure from our campaign, the local Democrats were forced to come out in public opposition to stepping forward, and in a historic victory, the federal officials were forced to withdraw stepping forward and allow public housing tenants to stay secure in their homes. To our knowledge, Seattle was the only city in which the Moving to Work initiative was defeated. In the spring of 2019, the tenants of the Chateau a working-class apartment building in Seattle's Central District, learned that Cadence Real Estate, the $185 million development corporation that owns the building, planned to demolish the 21 apartments and displace the tenants. Most of the Chateau tenants were retirees and working families of color, many of them immigrants. Residents ranged in age from newborn to 93, most of the tenants had nowhere else to go. I don't know if it's Shama or some other, you know, an, or one of the organizers in our office had noticed there were, uh, you know, those signs that uh, uh, developers put up that, uh, that indicate that there's going to be, uh, you know, uh, development going on. Um, and I know one of our uh, people saw it. And so we actually went to the Chateau Apartments and we started, you know, knocking on the door just knowing how huge of a problem, you know, displacement, especially of uh, black and brown community in the central district here, how big of a problem was. We knocked on 
you know, all the doors and said, did they know about this? And the reality is they hadn't even been given the, you know, afforded the luxury of being told by the developer that their uh, building was going to be torn down, um, you know, not that long in the future. And uh, we asked them if they wanted to fight. And, um, you know, from there, kind of, a, a, you know, enough of them said yes, they did, that we were able to get a meeting together. Our office helped organize the Chateau residents, holding a number of meetings where we discussed the need for concrete demands and renter solidarity in the face of Cadence's predictable attempts to divide and conquer by offering some of them special perks. The tenants stood together and fought back. Alongside our office, the Tenants Union of Washington State, progressive faith leaders like Reverend Robert Jeffrey and labor rank and file. Taking um, citizens who are in peril and working with them to find solutions and find ways in which they can empower themselves and, and not be devastated by the machinery, by the corporate machinery and, and, and uh, money. The Cadence executives were forced to concede to the tenants' demands and agreed to relocate all of the Chateau residents to new affordable housing buildings, give each household $5,000 for relocation assistance, and delay redevelopment so that tenants could stay at the Chateau longer and move out without being rushed. This was an unheard of victory. Nobody in Seattle has caused more headaches for big business, the billionaire class, and the political establishment than Shama Sawant, Socialist Alternative, and the movements we have used this office to build. In April 2014, shortly before we won the $15 minimum wage, a columnist from the conservative and pro-corporate Seattle Times said, quote, if the Seattle City Council passes a $15 wage in the coming months, as appears likely, Sawant will appropriately get credit for coming out of nowhere to commandeer the city's political agenda, who, aside from socialist alternative newspaper subscribers, had a quick jump to a $15 wage on their radar a year ago. Yet the political fear of Sawant's organizing skill has put a radical economic policy on greased rails. In process-loving Seattle, the minimum wage is happening as quickly as a lightning strike." Longtime corporate landlord lobbyist Jamie Durkin once said, every dollar that corporate landlords had spent over recent years lobbying the city council was wasted because of quote-unquote Sawant's army, by which he meant rank-and-file renters mobilizing to win victories. These statements from the spokespeople of the ruling class acknowledge that Democrats in City Hall were forced to concede to working people when they were organized and changed the balance of power away from corporate interests. Progressive media outlet Mother Jones wrote an article in December 2019 titled Heroes of the 2010s, Shama Sawant, the Socialist Who Beat Amazon. In it, they said, quote, Sawant isn't a 2010s hero strictly for wage hikes or tenants' rights. It's also how she secured those victories, by breaking rules, by embracing confrontation, by picking a quote-unquote unrealistic goal and building on it, dragging Seattle's Democrats around by the nose. Who thought one lonely Trotskyist could so upend in so little time the American consensus on a fair wage, end quote. Of course, far from being lonely, our organizing was rooted in the mass solidarity of working people. We'll be back next week with the rest of the lessons from our Seattle experience. Don't forget to go to workerstrikeback.org and click on Become a Member. On Strike is a production of Workers Strike Back, a nationwide organization fighting on working class demands like a $25 an hour minimum wage, union jobs, Medicare for all, and against discrimination and oppression. Workers Strike Back is also calling for a new party for working people, 
because neither the Republican Party nor the Democratic Party represents us. On Strike is a broadcast entirely for working people, funded entirely by working people. Solidarity.